This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yeah. And NPR. Hey, I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Crowley. This is Radio Lab, and our show today is about uh, being witness to something. It's actually not something you really choose to witness. Yeah, you feel like, should I be seeing this? Mm. This is a story that for me speaks to like what it's like to live in a city. When you look out the window, we're, so, we're all so jammed together that suddenly you're seeing into the lives of somebody else through their window, and uh, you just kind of fall into it without even wanting to. In this particular tale, it, it, what is observed is so surprising and so for its tenderness and for its quiet love that we, it, it's a rare thing to see, so we wanted to send it your way. From our friends over at Radiotopia, Nick Vanderkoek and Brendan Baker. So here we go. This is how their story begins. So I'd been living in my apartment about 15 years. And one evening, I walked in the living room, which has three bay windows, which face the gardens in the back. And over half a block of gardens and across a small street, there was this bright window that I'd never noticed before. But it's at the exact eye level of my third floor apartment. And after a while, I realized that I'd never seen it because there had always been curtains. And so it was always, I think, dimly lit. The curtains were often closed. And all of a sudden, there's this bright light and no curtains. And it was like a movie screen. Fifteen years, and that window has meant nothing. (laughs) I haven't even noticed it. And now it's all I think about There were new tenants, and it had always been a living room, and now it was suddenly a bedroom. And there were these two people in there, and they were naked. This young couple in their 20s, they were really lovey-dovey, and they were always naked. That's Diane Wipert, who tells the story, and she told it to radio reporter Brianna Breen, who produced this piece with Nick and Brendan. The thing is, they pushed their bed so that the head was up against the windows. So their heads, you could see both of their heads lying there. So you'd see things that you just, like, they were just shocking. I just had been there all of this time, and suddenly you could see people having sex really clearly, like like amazingly clearly. I I had no idea that you could see so well across uh, such a distance. And it was really uncomfortable. My husband and I, we're um, still adjusting to parenthood, and it wasn't the most romantic time in our, in our lives. And my son was probably three, and 
when you're new parents to a toddler, especially because he sleeps in bed with us too. So he's like literally right between us. The last thing you need is a couple of hotties getting it on across the window, reminding your husband of everything he's not getting. So to have this really beautiful young woman that was really thin and, and, and naked all the time, really, you know, it, it was very frustrating. And, 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 you know, she had this beautiful, tall, lanky, well-built boyfriend. And so at first I, I just, because I felt like my husband was going to be staring at this naked woman all the time, I started closing the living room curtains, which is really kind of silly. And, and it made our room really dark and we never closed those curtains. And so that didn't work. So I thought about like making a really big sign that said like, close your curtains or buy curtains. They didn't even have curtains. Buy curtains, we can see you. And I thought about going by their building. I had no idea what their unit was and leaving a note. And um, then I started thinking that was really silly and prudish and started realizing that they were just young and I had to just get over it and live with it and move on. And so that's what I did. We got really used to them and they became sort of this symbol of what we used to be, you know, in our 20s. And they were living this really carefree time. And that's another thing that it was kind of hard not to sometimes, when you're in early parenthood, you get a little bitter, I think, about some of those freedoms. And we'd watch them sleeping till 11 while we'd been up since five with our toddler. And, and we saw them eating breakfast on the roof together. So we got used to it and we, we, know, we would notice like, oh, look, they got a new you know, plant in there. And they became sort of part of our lives, you know, because they were just always there and never ever bought curtains. Do you think all the neighbors in your building and the surrounding buildings also saw this? It's funny, I think that the way that we're positioned, because all of the buildings around us are different sizes and our building is the tallest one on our block, but it's exactly at the right level to see their, their windows. I have a friend next door and then a friend across the way and, and all of them have windows facing the gardens, but not all of them are blocked. And I look at the other windows of the buildings around us and I don't think anyone has this perfect level view. The irony is that I'm such a private person and I don't know, am I supposed to have maybe respected their privacy and just looked away? But it's impossible because that's the way the chairs face. <laughs> they face the window. I couldn't, I couldn't not see them if I wanted to. But I guess I could have not gotten the binoculars. So time went by, and this is maybe a year and a half later, two years later, and I remember seeing their room, and the light was on, but it was empty. And I thought that was strange, because it was five o'clock in the morning, and they never went anywhere early. And it was like that for like a whole week. It was just this empty room with the light on. And I thought that was strange. They, they didn't seem to be there as often, or maybe just she would be there and he was gone for long periods of time. 
and we just kind of forgot about them. You know, we just there were there well, there wasn't as much action going on, and they weren't as present, and so we just kind of lived our lives and forgot about them for maybe seven or eight months. At the end of last year, in December, there was this night when my husband and I separately had both seen this woman naked sitting in the window, kind of chubby, slump-shouldered woman who was just looking down at the street. And we both thought it was so strange. Just couldn't figure out who she was and what she was doing and why she was naked. And uh, a few nights later, there was this young man standing right at the window by the bed. And he was skeletal. He was so thin. And he was bald completely. And we realized it was the same couple. They had completely changed. He was sick. There was something serious wrong with him. After that, I just watched the window all the time. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna pause right here. Um, let's just we'll be right back. This is Charlie from Brooklyn. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. Let's get back to our story from Brianna Breen and the folks at Love and Radio, Nick Vanderkolk and Brendan Baker. And so we're just going to go back to the room, see see what's what we can see through the window. Here's Diane Wiper. I just watched the window all the time. And he would sit all day. He was there because I work from home. And I would see him all day in the bedroom, either lying down or sitting at the computer. And then after a couple of weeks, he was just lying down and he was just there and his bald head would be um, up against the, the pane of glass all the time. And she would be there 
and she'd come in and she would bring him things but mostly it was just him there by himself and sometimes he would have like his knees bent and you could just see how uh skeletal they were they were just bones and sometimes he'd kick off the blankets and he was just lying there naked and emaciated and then after a while he was just always burrowed under the blankets I, I found myself thinking like, well, maybe he's been through chemo and he's recovering and, you know, he's going through this, um, this sick phase before he gets well because he's so young. He's in a, you know, he's just such a young guy. And so we had to go to Colorado to see my family for Christmas. And um, I worried all the time I was there. I, I thought about them and I worried that he wasn't going to be there when we got back. I worried all the time about it. When we got back, about 10 days later, um, he was still there, but his head looked so much smaller, and, um, and there were a lot of people there. And, the, and then I got out my binoculars. I got my birding binoculars. <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but it, at that point, I felt so invested. It looked like people coming to say goodbye. And there was this sort of short, um, blonde, Midwestern-looking woman who I guessed was his mother. And then there was this young guy who just kept pacing the halls. You know, you could just see there were two doorways leading out of this room, and you could just see him go down one side and through the other, and then back and forth and back and forth. And I figured he was the brother. And it looked like the girlfriend's sister was also there. It was just, it was just a guess. It looked like her. I remember there was just this little gathering going on in the living room right below. The neighbors were standing around and having drinks, and they had no idea at all what was going on right upstairs. I would watch people come and go. Then after a while, everyone left except for the girlfriend and the mother. And, and I spent, <laughs> and I spent uh, all that evening, like, s sitting vigil on the back of the couch and, and watching. And, and I remember the girlfriend lying beside him for a long time on her own, and she was just stroking his face so tenderly. It was, it was so much affection that really transcends the kind of young love that you expect. All I could see was the top of his head all that time. And I remember later seeing her standing by the bed with the mother on the other side, and they were just all talking, and she put a hand on his forehead. She put the back of her hand on his forehead, and then she was wiping at her eyes. And you could tell that there was this, that there was this sense that something, that it was getting closer. Then I could see this reckoning where she, she was wiping at her eyes and touching his forehead and wiping at her eyes. And there were candles lit and, and this um, young woman was on one side and his mother was on the other side. And they just 
were lying there for a really long time and they had their hands just resting on his chest. And so I watched it for a long time. The mother and the girlfriend were lying on either side of him and you could tell it was his, this was the end. I thought, now all that's left is the girlfriend and the mother and inexplicably me. Me, like I am one of the three people at the deathbed. And they lay there for a long time. And then they just got up and they went into the other room. <clears throat> and I realized that must have been the moment. And all this time, you know, I always had this sense that, you know, they're, they're going to break up. They're going to move out. Nobody that age stays together very long. And, and I had no idea. It was just like this beautiful love story. So the next day, <clears throat> the next day, I got up and I went to the window first thing. And they were folding up blankets and stacking them on the bed. And I figured that he had been taken away. And so I was in the kitchen and my husband called because he had, he knew how obsessed I'd gotten with this situation. And he said, there's activity over there. And I came running and I got my binoculars and I looked and, and realized that he was still there. He was still on the bed. Um, his body was still there and it was the coroner. So the coroner and his assistant came and they had these white plastic gloves on and they pulled his body to the edge of the bed and onto this white sheet. And I just remember the, the lifelessness of it. It looked so shrunken. It almost looked like a shrunken rubber proxy of a body. So incredibly dead. <laughs> they wrapped him in the sheet and they zipped him into a vinyl bag and they put him on this kind of gurney. They took the gurney out and I just had this very strange impulse and I ran and threw on my coat kind of over my pajamas and ran out to the street and ran to the corner. And I got there just as they were hauling him out. They were carrying him out and the girlfriend was there. She was talking to one of them in the doorway and they loaded him into this van and I realized that they didn't know me at all. Like I had, you know, I had no place to be there. And they looked at me. I remembered the coroner's assistant looking at me like I was sort of a, like a rubbernecker in the street, you know, looking at this grisly scene. And I realized that's, that's what I was. I had no place to be there. And suddenly it all felt so perverse. And so I went home and... I felt very strange about the whole thing. Um, and I tried to tell myself that, well, I never wanted to be part of their lives. I, wanted, I was the one that wanted them to put up curtains. I wanted them to, to shut the intimate stuff out. I, I was uncomfortable with it. I was the one that wanted out. And I started remembering all of a sudden the, when I moved to that apartment so many years ago, and I was in my mid-20s, 
that I had to share the apartment with a roommate because it was too expensive. And my bedroom was in the living room. And I remember how when I first moved in, I pushed the head of my bed up against the three bay windows so, <laughs> so that in the morning I could see the sky. And I remember that I had no clue. It never occurred to me that anyone could see me, that I remember that I felt like whenever I looked out the window, I never saw anyone and I never closed my curtains either. Did you ever find out either of their names? I, I never have found out their names and I looked through the local obituaries obsessively for weeks and there was never anyone that fit his description. There was never anyone young enough or that looked like him. Um, so no idea. I walked by their place several times and there's only, there are only numbers on the mailboxes and the buzzers and there's, there are no names. So I can't look up anything. I, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea who she is. I have no idea who he was. No idea what he was sick with. I don't know if I've gotten anything right. Maybe they were married, but I didn't get wrong the fact that he died because I was there. <laughs> I was there for that because I saw it all. I think about that a lot, how he chose, that he chose to die in that, in that bed, in that bedroom. And he didn't choose to go to a hospice or anywhere he wanted to be in his bedroom. All of those long days from the morning when I looked out in the evening, he was just exactly the same position. That was where he wanted to be. And uh, <laughs> it's where all of the happy times were, I guess, and the end times, you know. Just a couple days after it happened, she was up on the roof with a friend doing doing yoga. And um, I've watched her lying around a lot. She went out of town, I think, for a bit. And um, she's still there. I have been watching her recovery. And instead of being this young woman, she looks totally different. She looks so changed. She just looks like this very um, experienced, world-weary person. She has a job now that gets her up very early because I get up at 6 and she's already dressed and heads out at like 6.15. And the other night I saw her um, and she was in her bedroom and she um, was wearing this baggy t-shirt and all the lights were on and and she was dancing <laughs> just dancing around her room so yeah i i want her um i want her to move on this this young woman that i was so cranky and bitter about you know now she's now she's um now i feel so protective and kind of maternal you know if you ran into her like at the corner market or something do you think you could ever say anything to her? Yeah, if I ran into her, I wouldn't say a thing. <laughs> what would I say? I've been watching you through your window. How creepy would that be? 
<laughs> um, yeah, no way. She doesn't, you know, she, she doesn't know that She doesn't know that there's this person that, um, I don't know, that's this complete stranger that's out there really rooting for her, you know? Diane Weibert told her story to radio reporter Brianna Breen, who produced this with the folks at Love and Radio, Nick Vanderkolk and Brendan Baker. Special thanks to Karen Duffin, to Brendan, Brianna, and to Nick. And there are some wonderful stories on their podcast. You should listen to all of them. It's called Love and Radio. You'll find it at loveandradio.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. Thanks for listening. <laughs>